Morning, everybody. Thanks for being with us at church today. Thanks for joining us online. Last week, we started a series on Advent. Advent is the time in the Christian calendar where we anticipate the coming of Christ into the world. Traditionally, it's a season of waiting. We're waiting for Jesus to get here and celebrate his birthday. So last week, we asked the question, what were they waiting for back then? I mean, before Jesus was literally and physically born into the world, what were the people of first century Palestine waiting for? And today we're asking the question, what are you and I waiting for now? And historically, the answer is that Christian people have been waiting for the return of Jesus, for the second coming of Christ. This is a feature of all Orthodox Christian faith from the time of the apostles until now. Remember, in Acts chapter 1, Jesus gives his disciples their final marching instructions. He says, you're to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, even unto the ends of the earth. We're supposed to go in the power and the authority of God's Holy Spirit, proclaiming good news to all creation. That's, that's what we're supposed to do. And then Jesus is taken up into heaven on a cloud, and the disciples all stand there. I, I, I like to imagine them in a big circle, kind of looking up, going, huh, there he goes. Cool trick. And then angels appear, and they say to the disciples, why are you standing there? Staring up into space. This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come again in the same way. Now, that's not the only time in the Bible that Jesus promises he'll return. Multiple times in John's gospel and in Mark's gospel, Jesus tells him he's coming back. And the writings of the Apostle Paul and Hebrews were told again and again and again, he's coming back. The anticipation of Christ's return dominates Christian thinking and imagination, and has for the last several thousand years. But, um, uh, but he hadn't come back yet, which I, which I think is really important to note. Like if you were a casual observer of the Christian faith in the 20th century, you would think that Jesus is coming back any second, like maybe now, or now. Or wouldn't it be a great joke for Jesus to punk me and then come back before I could finish this sentence? Because we, we have this, this sense that, that he's got to come back soon, right? I mean, he, he has to. Look at all the nonsense going on in the world today. It's, the, he's he's got to come back, right? That's what Christians have always been thinking. I mean, his first disciples thought he was going to come back before they died. They were wrong. Their disciples, chief among them Polycarp, who was John's disciple, they, they thought Jesus was coming back before they died. They were wrong. One of my favorite patristic theologians, Irenaeus, he thought Jesus was coming back in the year 500 because it was a nice round number. He was wrong. Pope Sebastian thought Jesus was coming back in the year 1000 because that was the end of the millennium after Jesus' first advent. Um, he was wrong. Joachim de Fiore, one of my favorite artists, with all these weird kind of apocalyptic supernatural portrayals of, portrayals of, of, of heavenly creatures. And yeah, he, he thought Jesus was coming back in, in 1250. He was wrong. John Wesley, founder of all Wesleyan Christian tribes, Nazarenes, uh, Pentecostals, Assemblies of God, Foursquare, all Methodist tribes, Methodist, Free Methodist, United Methodist, who cares, Methodist, all those guys thought Jesus was coming back in 1836. 
he was wrong. Joseph Smith, founder of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, commonly called Mormons, thought Jesus was coming back in 1831. He was wrong about that and a lot of other things. In 1994, Harold Camping became famous for predicting that Jesus would come back that year. He was wrong. Jerry Falwell in 1999 said Jesus will come back within the next decade. He was wrong. Everybody who has ever predicted when Jesus would return has been and will continue to be wrong because somebody smart one time said, no one knows the day or the hour. No one. And, and yet, there's a twisted kind of preoccupation with Jesus' imminent return among modern Christians. And, and, and the reason I, I want to poke at this today is because Jesus told us, you'll know a tree by its fruit. And the fruit of eager speculation and anticipation about the imminence of Jesus' second coming has not been love, joy, peace, not patience, not gentleness, not faithfulness, not goodness, not self-control. It's been panic and victimization. It's been villainizing our enemies, often our political adversaries or our geopolitical rivals. The fruit of our speculation has been bitter and twisted and hateful. And it has compromised the efficacy of our witness. We're bad Christians when we get caught up into all that Stuff, and all the stuff that goes along with it. I mean, you, you, of course, don't do this, but you probably know Christians who do, who get on and go, oh my gosh, look at all the horrible things happening. Wars and rumors of wars. We're living in the end times. At any moment now, the rapture will happen and Jesus will come. He has to because he has to stop the, you know, the, the, the Antichrist. And whoa, Turbo, slow your roll, Holmes. Um, you're wrong. You're You're wrong. Everybody who goes down that path is wrong. And, and I think, more significantly, they missed the point. Now, I, I want to tease this out a little bit, because here, in Acts chapter 1, when, when Jesus is described as going up on the clouds, everybody who saw that happen would have had like a little bell go on in their biblical memory. Because in the book of Daniel chapter 7, the prophet Daniel has a prophetic vision. You know, he has this, this picture that he sees of somebody like a son of man. That's the term that he uses. That was, incidentally, Jesus' favorite nickname for himself, a son of man. You know what it means? It means a, a guy, a, a human. Like a, a son of a dog is a puppy. A son of a goat is a kid. You didn't think I was going to say dog, did you? You got nervous. You were like, oh, easy, bud. Yeah. Well, a son of man is just a, is a person. So one like a son of man coming on the clouds with the ancient of days. And he was given power and glory and authority to establish dominion in his kingdom forever. Pe people understood in this prophecy from Daniel that, that God was going to work 
redemptive purpose through, through a person, through one particular person. And that, that that redemptive purpose would mean like gathering people together, not smacking them apart. It would mean elevating people who were previously oppressed or disenfranchised or underprivileged. It wouldn't mean keeping them down. It would mean unifying the hearts and minds of people through peace, through justice, through equity and love. That's the whole Danielic vision, the eschatological vision of the Old Testament prophets, that a time is coming and will soon come, says the Lord, that the lion will lay down with the lamb, that the crooked paths will be made straight. Words from Nahum, Isaiah, Habakkuk, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Daniel, they all speak about the time when God is going to make things right through his servant. When Jesus goes up on the cloud, they're all sitting there going, oh man, he's the guy. He's the one we've been waiting for. And when he comes back, then it'll, it'll fully and finally get sorted out. Um, but again, he, he hasn't done that yet. Well, well, what are we supposed to do? But then, in Acts chapter 1, they... they they go home, <laughs> which I think is hilarious. They return to Jerusalem, and then they hang out and have a prayer meeting and decide to wait for God's Holy Spirit to show up. It goes on for like several months. I mean, I've been in some prayer meetings that felt long, but never one that was 120 days long. That seems interminable. I mean, good night. Dear Lord, thank you for this day, <laughs> and this day, and this day, and this day. But I think we get more clues about what we're supposed to do in the meantime from another passage that speaks about the second coming of Jesus, one that's popularly misunderstood. It comes from Paul's letter to the church in Thessalonica. First Thessalonians chapter 4, verse, thir or verse 13 to 18. See, Paul's talking to all these Christian people who are, who are sad about other Christians that have died. And they're troubled about the persecution that they're enduring as faithful witnesses of Jesus. And they're not sure what's going to happen. I mean, these people died. Jesus hasn't come back yet. What does that mean? Does that mean they don't go to heaven? Does that mean they don't get to participate with Jesus? What happens to people when they die? And Paul says, relax. Loosely translated. Because we know that those who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. Which is a fancy way of saying, don't worry, God's got plans for those who have passed on. And those plans are good. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command and the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Now hang on. Here again, when Paul starts talking like this, the people who first heard him, most of whom, if not all of whom, would have grown up as practicing Jews, they would have had a little alarm bell go off in their mind. Wait a minute, we, we remember Somebody who came down from on high before. We remember somebody whose arrival was preceded by a trumpet blast. We remember somebody who showed up. It sounds like Moses. Remember when Moses went up on Mount Sinai and he received the Ten Commandments. And then he decided to go back down, present the commands of God's law to all the ancient Israelite people. And there was a trumpet that sounded his return. 
Then Moses came down and he looked around and he didn't like what he found. There were all kinds of people doing all kinds of nonsense, not the least of which was his brother who he'd left in charge. That's never a good idea. And the time came for Moses to set things right. So Paul wants the Christian church then to know that Jesus is going to come and, and set things right. And it's going to be kind of like when Moses came to set things right, which is a huge theme in all the Gospels, particularly the Gospel of Mark, often called the New Exodus Gospel, that repeatedly compares Jesus to Moses. And then this is where the speculation starts to come in. So let me keep reading. Not my speculation, but the common speculation. <clears throat> then we who are alive who are left here on the earth, will be caught up together with them, meaning the pre previously deceased Christians, in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and we will always be with him together. Now that sounds, at first blush, like Paul is suggesting that we're going to go up in the clouds and maybe levitate like Jesus. Until you do a little digging. Now, the word Paul uses to describe all of this coming, the second coming, the imminent return of Jesus, is the word parousia. And a parousia was like a parade. See, if you had an a emperor, like Caesar, perhaps, who'd gone out and been involved in a huge war, and he'd been victorious, he would start a parade called a triumph. He'd take all the leaders that he conquered, the great spoils of war, all the great artifacts, and he, he'd put them in a big train, and they'd have this huge caravan that would come into a city. That, that was the, the triumph. And the parousia was when people went out to meet the emperor and usher him back home. Like, imagine that we were going to have a president visit downtown Jackson. You pick which president, because probably you hate half of them, but you pick one of the ones you don't hate so much. Um, I'll wait. Okay? And you know that the president is coming in a motorcade in downtown Jackson at 4 o'clock today. Well, at 2 o'clock today, you're going to go downtown to get a good seat, to watch him, to cheer him on, to celebrate the fact that our tiny little town is being honored by the presence of a great leader. But that's not all that Perusia was. It wasn't just that they greeted the king or the emperor out there. They also ushered them back home. And that's critical for understanding what Paul intends you and I to understand. See, for a long time, Christians have been imagining that Jesus is going to show up again in the clouds and we'll do our, you know, magic jumping bean trick and then Jesus will get the, you know, the heavenly vacuum of Antioch and suck us all up off the planet and we'll shoot off into outer space where we live forever with naked baby angels and harps. But that's not what the Bible teaches the final resting place, the final residence of God is not up there, but here. That's why John, in his revelation, goes to such pains to point out that heaven comes down. That the new Jerusalem, the, the heavenly city of God, where there's no sun because people don't need sun because the light comes from God himself, where there's perfect peace and unity and harmony, the kingdom that will have no end, it, it comes down into this world so that our world is renewed. That's why Jesus said, behold, I make all things new, which is very different than Jesus said, behold, I make all new things. He's not getting rid of this world. He's not getting rid of you. 
He's not getting rid of the people you don't like. He's not getting rid of the things you don't like. He's making all things new. So here's what I want you to consider. If we know that Jesus is coming again, and I'm a believer, man, I think he is. And if we know that he comes again, it's not to get us out of here, but it's to get himself more fully here, that the presence of Jesus is the very thing that's going to fix stuff. And if you and I are meant to meet him and then sort of welcome him home, then I want to submit to you that instead of just waiting, like kids on a long car ride, or somebody impatiently waiting for their hors d'oeuvres at dinner, or somebody hoping that the preacher will get around to a point, instead of just waiting, I think we ought to be working. Because our work with God, on behalf of God, toward God's promised future, that work is a joy. I mean, it's like, if Jesus is going to live here, don't you want to spruce the place up a little bit? Like, if you're going to have company, don't you, you know, vacuum, clean the windows, find out what your kids have been stuffing underneath the couch cushions? I mean, don't you, don't you care a little bit? Our office manager, Michelle Poling, has got this spectacular home. Just absolutely done up to the nines all year round for every different season. I went to her house about two, three months ago, and I felt so out of place. I was like, I'm the one not pretty thing in your whole home. I feel like you're going to have to clean your home when I leave because you just got a visit from Oscar the Grouch. It was like, imagine going to a palace full of nutcrackers, and there's one dirty G.I. Joe off in the corner. That was me. But you know that when she, she does her house like that, she's doing it to demonstrate hospitality. Like she wants you to feel welcome. I think that's what we're meant to do now. Is get our house in order. Because you never know when the master is going to arrive. Jesus told a couple stories like that. He told stories about um, bridesmaids who were ill-prepared for the arrival of the bride and groom, and so they missed out on the wedding reception. He told stories about servants who were lazy and forsook their responsibilities, and so when the master arrived, they, they got caught with their pants down, so to speak. So I think if Jesus is coming back, well, you and I, we might, we might have a little preparatory work to do. So instead of waiting... We're working. Now, that work might take a lot of different forms, but here's three for you to consider. Number one, while we're waiting for the full and final cleanup of the world, we ought to work not just to preach the gospel, but to embody the gospel. Here's what I mean by that. You know, when people would get around Jesus and all the stories of the gospel, did they ever seem sad? I mean, sure, some people got mad at him. They were aggravated by his, you know, extreme claims, but... But everybody else, they, they, they liked to be around him. He was fantastic with women and children. People were drawn to him. He never turned away anybody who asked for healing. In fact, he, he gave something of himself to everyone. It didn't matter if they were Jewish. It didn't matter if they were 
Gentiles, Roman, didn't matter if they were of a different religion, didn't matter if they were of a different class. Everybody who got around Jesus was glad they did. He embodied good news. Isn't that how Christians ought to be? Like when you close your eyes and you imagine what it's like to get around Christian people. Boy, I bet if you're honest, sometimes that's a that's uncomfortable. You think, oh man, I can't wait to see my Christian friends till the topic of gay marriage comes up or till the topic of politics comes up or you know, till the topic of our world going to hell in a handbasket and oh my God, please somebody save me before I have to kill myself to get out of this miserable existence comes up. Christians tend to be complainers. They tend to be critical. They tend to be judgmental. And I think in one sense we know that that's because the world isn't yet the way that it should be. Like we know that. That's an important thing to acknowledge. But, but we also need to train ourselves that whatever is good, whatever is true, whatever is praiseworthy, whatever is noble, we should think on these things. We should talk about these things. We should celebrate these things. We should be people who bring good news because we are full of good news. And for too long, Christian people have reduced the gospel into a set of propositions. Well, if you believe that Jesus is Lord, he died on the cross for your sins and rose from the grave, you accepted him in your heart, you prayed the sinner's prayer, you go to church every Sunday, you pay your tithes, you vote Republican, well then, hallelujah, brother, welcome to the family. Um, there's a whole lot of stuff in what I just said that's not in the Bible. Because it's not about a list of things to which you give your mental assent. The gospel is about being caught up in the story of God's love for the world. For God so loved the world, he gave his son. Didn't come to judge it, not to condemn it, but to heal it, redeem it, restore it, and save it. So that's, that's what we ought to be doing. We ought to be loving and healing and redeeming and restoring. The reputation of Christians ought to be blistering with warmth and enthusiasm for our fellow humans. Second thing we might consider while we're waiting for Jesus to finally show up in a way that defies all our most imaginative speculations. I mean, I like to think that if they were so wrong in their messianic expectation back then, you know, they didn't really know what they should have been looking for, so they practically missed it. How much wronger are we likely to be now when we're waiting for his future coming? I mean, we're, we're probably going to, you know, miss a detail or two here and there. But while we're waiting for this world-shaking, world-remaking event, um, we ought to cultivate beauty, truth, and goodness. Now Thomas Aquinas, one of the towering figures of Christian theology, said these are the three transcendentals of being. How do you know if something's beautiful? Because it's true and it's good. How do you know if something's true? Well, because it's beautiful and it's good. How do you know if something's good? Well, it's, it's beautiful and true. These are things that we can pour ourselves into with enthusiasm as demonstrations of the Spirit's work in our lives. And, and sometimes that's that's 
Well, sometimes it's hard to imagine. Like how is a beautiful home a manifestation of God's grace? Because you're preparing your house as a place of hospitality to love and serve others. I mean, that's why we do all this stuff around here. When you come to church, we want to show you beautiful things because it's a foretaste, it's a foreshock, it's an appetizer of what heaven is going to be like. When John describes the new Jerusalem, the shining city of God coming down to earth, it's covered in gold and precious metals and jewels, not because God is rich, but because God is a craftsman. Because God cares about the future and how people will live and what they will see and what they will get to enjoy. Likewise, we care about what you will see and what you get to enjoy. Man, when you come here on Christmas Eve and you bring somebody with you that maybe hadn't been to church in a while, or maybe they haven't been to Westwinds in a while, do you know, do you know what we hear hundreds of times over and over and over again? People come in, they go, wow, that's so cool. I just, I just didn't know it could be like that. Bingo. Bingo. Beauty changes people's minds and their hearts about what's real and about what's true. And when they come in and they see something beautiful, a fake pipe organ or something neat on the screens, you know, it's just design, except that God is a designer. And when they see something different, their hearts are open to hearing something different. Like, wow, if that place looks like this, maybe they're not going to condemn me or hate me or tell me I'm going to hell. Good news. Jesus didn't condemn you. Jesus doesn't hate you. Jesus never told you you're going to hell. We, as servants of Jesus, we don't hate you. We don't condemn you. We're not here to tell you you're going to hell. We're here to demonstrate the love of God poured out for you extravagantly. That's true. And that's good. And the more we invest ourselves in beauty, the more we're reminding ourselves that the world is the one we get to make. Is your world ugly? Good news, you can fix it. Is your world full of lies? Well, good news. You get to correct them. And here Christians get excited. We love to correct error. We love to point out when other people aren't telling the truth. Fake news. Um, But that's where I think beauty and goodness are a healthy counterweight. Because we love to tell people that we're going to speak the truth in love. I just don't think anybody believes us anymore. Because we're pretty good at the truth, but we're not so great at love. So maybe we could teach ourselves to temper our truth with mercy. Because God knows we need it. Maybe somebody else might benefit from a little mercy as well. Oh, but Dave, we got to rightly divide truth from error. Oh, I know, man. I, we love to judge. Except we're not the judge. Somebody smart told me, judge not. Lest ye be judged yourself, buddy. So we have to cultivate beauty and truth and and goodness. I love what Paul says in Ephesians about God preparing good works in advance for us to do. 
Like that God is sprinkling out all over your life opportunities for you to be good to people. And every time you start thinking, oh, this is the end of the world. Oh, we're going to hell in a handbasket. This is the end times. This is Armageddon. Man, bake a pie and give it to your neighbor. Just chill out. Give somebody a hug. Offer them a ride to the airport. Move a couch. I mean, just come back to earth. Because this is where you belong. You were made for this place. And you got to get it ready for when the master comes home. Last but not least, third thing I think we ought to work towards while we're waiting is the thing for which Christians have historically most favorably been known. This is what we're best at. I mean, for the last couple millennia, the thing that Christians have excelled in is... Um, Suffering and suffering well. Jesus said, In this world, you will have trouble. Like, you're gonna suffer. At some point, you're gonna get sick. <laughs> There's a funny story that goes around about uh, of our West Wind staff that when COVID hit, you know, and 175 years ago, I was on the West Coast, and so we were having a, our first virtual staff meeting. Everybody's gathered together, and I think maybe they were hoping I was going to say something inspiring. Um, and, and this is true. You heard it from me. But we all get together in this Zoom call, and I was, on, I was in Seattle, and, and, and I, I said, hey, listen, you're going to get sick, and some of you will probably die. And they were like, what kind of leader are you? <laughs> so far, I've been wrong about that. I'm grateful. But the truth is, at some point, you're going to go through some stuff, man. You're going to get sick. You're all going to die. We are all going to die at some point. Sometime it might be painful, might be abrupt, might be too soon, might be way too late. But what Christian people do is not run from their suffering. We trust that God will be present within us, providing peace in the midst of our suffering. That's why way back when, when Christians are being fed to lions in the Colosseum, we got all these stories about Christian people singing songs to usher their bodies into eternity. That's why you got stories now of people in, in, in India, in our churches there with our, our friends Suresh and Law where they pastor. You got stories in their churches of people missing hands and arms because their husbands punished them for converting from Hinduism to Christianity. You got people with acid poured on their face from their fathers who punished them for converting into Christianity. And these people have such radiant and resident joy because they know who they believe in. They know what they signed up for. And you get around them and you feel so humbled. Like, how can you suffer well through that and I can't suffer well wearing a mask? You suffer like Jesus suffered. And when I am inconvenienced, I pout. And I, I get so convicted because I go, if I'm really waiting for Jesus to come back, and if I really believe 
that God's dwelling place is with his people. If I really believe that the spirit of Jesus is in me, man, I gotta, I gotta do better. Now, the man Jesus, he could show up again at any moment. But let's just imagine, because honestly, it'd be great if I was wrong, but let's just imagine that he's not coming back for another 50 years. What are you going to do with that 50 years? If you don't spend that 50 years fantasizing about how you're going to get off this rock, if you don't spend that 50 years dreaming about how Jesus is going to punish all the people you don't like, but if you spend that 50 years with the spirit of Jesus inside you, loving and serving the people around you, embodying the gospel, cultivating beauty, truth, and goodness, suffering well when necessary, well, I bet you he likes his home a lot more when he finally shows up to move in. Amen. Uh, let's pray. Lord, we thank you. You gave us so much to go on. You gave us such clarity. Enough. More than enough. And you gave us your spirit. Yet, Nevertheless, Lord, standing in line with all the people before us and beside us, we say, come quickly, Lord. Come quickly. But even if you don't, we're going to keep moving forward, trusting you'll make up the difference when you get here. We love you, Jesus, and we bless you. Amen.